Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Before we dig into Isaiah chapters 26 and 27, uh, a wonderful study because though the church in Israel are not the same entity, the church is the church and Israel is Israel, and one day they will be joined together. Israel is always a picture of the beautiful things that the Lord has for the church, and so we'll dig into those two chapters in a moment. Before we do that, I want to just kind of fill you in on what's going on. As you might imagine, preparation's underway for our outdoor sanctuary. We're nearly done. You can kind of view those on Instagram and our uh, website and all those uh, virtual places that you can go and kind of check out what's going on, especially on Instagram. We've got a couple of things up there. But we want to let you know that we absolutely understand that many of you are not actually ready to come back to church yet. And so for you... Uh, we are going to continue to live stream all of our services at their normal time. So if you normally are tuning in at 9, you'll be able to do that. And at 1045 on Sunday, you'll be able to do that. And 1230, you'll be able to do that. And on Thursday night at 7, the only difference is we are going to, for a time, suspend our Sunday evening service just simply because of the necessity for moving in and out all of the tech and the things that we have to do uh, to make our live services happen in the parking lot. So we're going to temporarily... Uh, suspend uh, our Sunday evening service, and we'll pick that up once we get back inside the building. But as you are watching right now, you can probably see our sanctuary is set up outside. Uh, We do have some shade available underneath four very large tents. Uh, We've got enough chairs for 1,300 people, and those chairs currently are in very nice, neat rows. They will not stay that way after the first 30 seconds of people getting there because we are going to socially separate. So that means if you bring a group of 10, you can sit together with your normal family group. And if you bring a group of two, you can sit together. We just have to have six feet between you. So you might have a group of 10 and a group of two, and then two peoples that are sitting by themselves, each in, in one spot. Uh, we have no idea of how that's all going to work out as far as who's going to sit where. So we will simply move chairs uh, to accommodate those who come. The reason that we're having you sign up uh, is not because we're caving into the, the government for an illogical purpose. They actually may request, as you may have seen today, uh, various states are actually closing businesses. They're removing business permits and doing all kinds of things for breaking the law. And so we want to be able to prove that we did not uh, overpopulate the space that we've designated as our sanctuary. And so that's just simply a way uh, for us to do that. We have 1,300 chairs that we can move around in an area that can be socially separated. And so if the government should ask, we'd be able to produce that evidence uh, that we were doing everything that we can to be safe and to make sure that you are safe. Uh, so please do sign up. You do not need a ticket. Uh, you just simply need to sign up. That's just so that we can know that you're coming and to what service and so that we're ready for that. Um, also, we want to encourage you bring a water bottle, bring an umbrella, bring sunglasses, wear a hat if you like. We're going to be outside. First service should be fairly nice and cool. Second service may be a little warmer. Uh, and then Sunday night next week will be in the evening. So we'll start at 7, be done before 8.30. And so we just simply want to encourage you to come out and worship with us. We're going to have a live band. Uh, we can sing outdoors. Part of the new government mandates do allow for us to have as many people as will fit in that area socially separated. And so we figured that out to be 1,300. And we can sing our hearts out to the Lord out there. So we want to encourage you, bring a mask. It is going to be mandatory. Uh, and so for those of you that you know feel like this is not for you, stay home and watch online. We want to strongly encourage you to be safe and to be comfortable in, in the liberty that you're taking uh, with your health. And so uh, come join us. It's going to be a great time Sunday morning. 9 o'clock for first service, 1045 for second. Next Thursday, this service will also be outside. So uh, we hope to see you at one of those services. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 26, Isaiah 26. And if you have 
a Thomas Nelson produced Bible, uh, as I do. This happens to be a New King James Version, uh, which is what I read from. Uh, you're going to notice the topic that is listed here as the Song of Salvation, and it's really appropriate. The question is, when will Israel sing this song? When is it that Israel is going to finally come to that place that they know the Lord? Uh, because you'll notice there in verse 1, it says, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Now, the song we're told in the next portion of verse 1 is because God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. In other words, Israel will be saved. And so this is obviously pointing forward in our timeline to the very end of the age of grace and into the millennial reign of Christ. And so as we dig into this beautiful picture of the restoration of Israel in these two chapters uh, I pray that you will be encouraged and strengthened, and it'll remind you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for the nation Israel, and for the plans that God has to redeem his people, because he is a faithful God. Amen? Would you join me? Let's pray, and we'll take chapters 26 and 27 tonight, two chapters. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we pray now as we study your word that you the author of these words, the one who wrote these words through the prophet Isaiah by your spirit, that would speak to your church. Lord, we desire to hear what the spirit would say. Lord, we want to know your truth. And so we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would minister to our hearts and our minds. We ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. First four verses, let's look at those. And in that day, the song will be sung in the land of Judah. And of course, Judah would be the southern uh, kingdom described by the tribe of Judah and also the Benjamites, which were uh, there as well. For we have a strong city and God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates and two things that come next in verses two and three. Open the gates that the righteous nation, which keeps the truth, may enter in. Righteousness comes by being right with God. That's what the term basically means. If you are righteous, that means that you're standing before God as exactly as, as God would have it. In order to do that, of course, we know that the only way that anyone is righteous is by faith in Jesus Christ. Because we've been saved by grace and through faith, that righteousness that is of Christ is applied to our lives. And so this is obviously speaking of a time when the Jewish people are saved. Open the gates that the righteous nation, which keeps the truth, the focus there on the word, may enter. And you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. And so Isaiah opens chapter 26 with this statement and, and paints this picture of, of righteousness and peace finally being known by the Jewish people. And while I want to be very respectful to the Jewish people tonight, because we, we love the Jewish people, we have a heart for Israel in this church the righteousness is being spoken of here is the righteousness of one's heart and of one's life. It's the result of, of knowing Christ personally. It's not the result of re religion. You see, part of the problem that we have in our world today is we often confuse religion with relationship, and we think that religion can bring righteousness and it is only relationship that brings righteousness to an individual. In other words, I'm not righteous unless I'm found in Christ. And so the prophet Isaiah, seeing forward to that place that we call in that day, already referred to in this chapter, will be referred to again, has been a consistent theme throughout this book, where, where the Lord is looking forward through the prophet Isaiah to the very last days, when he says, look, there's going to come a day in time when I'm going to make good on all of the promises that I've made to my children. And so God is going to give them in this chapter, in chapter 26, six pictures which will point us to them finally being who God wants them to be. 
the Jewish people finally coming to faith in Messiah. And so as we've looked at the first four verses, verse five goes on to say, for he brings down those who dwell on high. The lofty city he lays low. He lays it low to the ground, he brings it down to the dust, and the foot shall tread it down in the feet of the poor and in the steps of the needy. You see, from the Jewish people's perspective, they had a couple of experiences that Isaiah is going to highlight. They had already seen Samaria, which is the northern kingdom, and Ephraim fall to the Assyrians. Jerusalem is now under siege, not only from the Assyrians, but would eventually be taken captivity by the Babylonians. And so the city of Jerusalem is being spoken of here, or Zion. Notice the gates. In that day, the land of Judah and the capital city of Judah, of course, is Jerusalem. That city wasn't safe. It wasn't a bulwark. There was no salvation. People were not safe in the city of Jerusalem. But Isaiah now is describing a time when they would be safe. And I think it's looking forward to this beautiful time when Zion will actually be the headquarters of the kingdom of the Lord. That Jesus will come back and set his feet on Mount, the Mount of Olives. It'll split in two and then he'll rule and reign literally from Jerusalem. And eventually there's going to be a new Jerusalem that descends from the heavens. Uh, that time when God will level the cities of the world. And so this is looking forward into the time that we would call the tribulation. That time of Jacob's trouble. And you see, when you start to compare these verses with what Psalm 15 says and Psalm 24 says, something becomes extremely clear. You, you start to look at this and you're like, this is a picture of people trusting Christ. This is a picture of people coming to faith. This is a picture of righteousness actually coming into view in someone's life and also peace. You see, you don't have peace with God unless you know Jesus Christ. Unless you have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as your Savior, you, you will not have peace with God. And so this picture of righteousness and peace joined together, when, 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 when you would meet a Jewish person on the road, they, they would speak shalom aleichem, which, which means peace unto you. Now, there can be temporal peace, there can be a cessation of hostility or war. But the real picture that Jewish people were actually asking, the thing that they were pointing towards is, you know, where does your peace come from? And for a Jewish person, they would respond that my peace comes from the Lord, for I will trust in him. That was a common response. And so they were looking for the real peace. They were looking for the real righteousness. They were looking for that depth of relationship that comes from knowing Christ. And that's the only way any city is a strong city. That's the only way that anyone comes in, into the place where they're actually being now watched over by the Lord. My life is guarded and hidden in Christ. And one day that's going to happen for everyone that, that we would today call an Israelite or someone who's Jewish, someone who is is of the tribe of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul's counsel in Philippians 4, there in verses 6 through 9, is actually based on what Isaiah is saying here in verse 3. It's like the Lord is that peace. That's how you have that perfect, perfect peace. That, that's how your mind is stayed. That's how you're steadied in this world. You see, throughout their history, Israel had walked a very rocky road. And it doesn't take you very long of studying the Old Testament, especially if you just skip the book of Genesis and jump into the book of Exodus. It doesn't take you very long to figure out that the children of Israel, as, as Jacob has had these 12 sons, is now in bondage in Egypt, and they're making mud bricks. As I shared as we go out and take up our temporary tabernacle outside. We're kind of picturing the children of Israel. That road was rocky. It was rough. And what they needed during that time was, was the rock of ages. They needed for stability to come into their midst. They, they needed the Lord. And what they turned to 
was idols, and what they turned to was back to Egypt, and what they turned to was their own flesh. And so because of that, God gave them a rocky road. He gave them an unlevel path. Look at verse 7. For the way of the just is uprightness, O most upright. For you weigh the path of the just. And yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. And the desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. They're, they're actually looking ahead. They're saying, well, we'd like to have a path of righteousness. We'd like to have a path that's honoring to you, Lord. But they had not done what's necessary to walk that path. You know, part of the thing that we have to come to terms with as believers is ultimately we play a part in how rocky the road is in our lives. Now, it's true that some things come into our lives because we live with people who are not following the Lord. And I believe America right now is being tested because of the fact that we've taken prayer out of our schools, because we continue to abort hundreds of thousands of children every year because we are not walking with the Lord, because we've allowed racial injustice to flourish in this country, because we've allowed things that are displeasing to God, we have chosen as a nation to walk a rocky path, because we've elected godless rulers, because we've put people into place, because we voted for people who do not share our values in Christ. We have chosen a rocky road in a very similar way, the children of Israel chose a rocky road, an unsmooth path, because the pathway itself was a pathway of unrighteousness. Verse 9 goes on, For with my soul I've desired you in the night, and yes, with my spirit within me I seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. And this is a picture of, of the righteous rule of the Lord. And interestingly enough, the children of Israel, if you look at Jacob, whose name would be changed to Israel, and Israel means governed by God, they were supposed to have righteousness as a standard in their land. They were supposed to walk with the Lord wherever they went. And because they chose not to do that, but they chose to follow after the Baal. They, they chose to follow after Asheroth. They, they chose Molech, they chose the Moabites, they chose the Edomites, they, they chose to walk away from the Lord. Because of that, they weren't walking on level ground, they were walking on very uneven, rocky soil. And God is saying one day, righteousness is going to be the state of their journey. And let grace be shown to the wicked, verse 10 and yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of the uprightness, rightness, he will deal unjustly and not behold the majesty of the Lord. And the Lord, when you're, and Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see. But they will see and be ashamed for the envy of their people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. And so the emphasis here on the way and on the path and the road and the Jewish people will finally get to that place after the tribulation to where they've repented and said, Lord, let us walk down your path. Let us walk your road. And if you're listening tonight and you're, you're on a path and it seems rocky and it seems bumpy, you're, you're on a road that somehow seems like it's uneven and unfair, could it be that it's also unrighteous? Could it be that you've chosen a path that's not of the Lord? Now, I'm not necessarily saying that I know that every path that's rocky is necessarily unrighteous, but very often that is the case. And so ask yourself, are, are you doing what's necessary to walk a level path? The next thing we see is that Israel's birth pains would be, would be worth it. Verse 12, Lord... You will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. The Lord, our God, masters beside you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. They are dead, and they will not live. They're deceased and will not rise, and therefore you have punished and destroyed them. 
made all their memory perish. You've increased the nation, O Lord. You've increased the nation. You're glorified. You've expanded all the borders of your land. Lord, in trouble, they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them as a woman was with child. Now, I want you to notice this. This is not the last time you're going to hear this, and you're going to hear these very words spoken of by the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, as she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. For we have been with child and we've been in pain, and we have, as it were, brought forth the wind. We've not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. The Apostle Paul picks up these very same thoughts in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them as the labor pains upon a pregnant woman. They shall not escape. And of course, Jesus in Matthew 24 picks up the exact same theme. Israel is waiting to this day for that new birth. That time when they see the Lord Jesus. And God says in the meantime, look, if you're going to fail to to bring forth those blessings, because remember that the gospel was to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But the Jewish people said, no, we really don't want Jesus as king. We don't want him as Lord. And so all this time that's intervened, these last 2,000 years, as Israel has travailed, as they've gone through so much heartache and headache, as they were kicked out of their own land and, and then finally returned in 1948, when they get to that place to where they're back in the nation, they still have a piece of the, the puzzle that has yet to be uh, come, has yet to come to fruition. They haven't recognized Messiah still to this day. One of the interesting things as you travel to Israel is you're going to find out that most Israelis are largely secular. It's not like a vast majority of the Jewish people are wandering around dressed as, as Hasidic Jews, the people that you would normally associate with Judaism with the, you know, the black hat and the ringlets on, the, on their sideburns and the... Uh, prayer tassels and, you know, a kippah and all of those things, that, that's fairly rare. That's a small percentage that are orthodox in that sense. They're mostly into technology and living a Western lifestyle. And so they turn then to the worship of idols. And in our day and time, those idols are the same idols that we worship here in America, frankly. Their prosperity, technology, wealth, things that you can purchase, things that you can drive that are your gods. And so basically, they had dominion placed over them then. There's dominion placed over them now. They had another husband. Interesting, the word Baal actually means husband in Hebrew. It was a Canaanite false god. It was this god that was, in essence, a bull. It was this storm god of the Canaanites. But for Israel, it was also saying, you guys kind of have another husband. You see, the bridegroom is supposed to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Israel had another husband. It was an idol. And God's saying, one day you're going to see your husband. You're going to be wedded to your husband. You're going to know your true husband. Eventually, Israel is going to experience the the resurrection in in reality. They're going to experience, if you will, the reality of the resurrection. Verse 19 here in chapter 26, and your dead shall live. Now, I want to tell you that there's very little in the Old Testament that speaks directly of the resurrection. This happens to be one of the strongest, if not the strongest passage 
in the Old Testament speaking very specifically about what we already know from the New Testament is going to occur because I believe I'm going to be absent from my body and present with the Lord. I also believe that when I get to heaven, I'm going to get a new body suited for heaven. I also believe in the resurrection of the saints because the Bible is very clear about that particular subject in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, through the writings of the prophet Isaiah, were told this, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise and awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of the herbs. The earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, and enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you and hide yourself, as it were, for a moment until the indignation is past. And this appears to be a picture of the wrath of God actually being poured out on the earth, which we know is exactly the conditions that will exist during what we call the tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble of Jeremiah 30. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their their iniquity. And the earth will also disclose her blood and no more cover her slain. You see, the Bible is clear. Just as dew gives new life to soil and vegetation, so God is going to raise up we who have passed on. We, we believe that the Lord is actually going to raise us up unto new life. I know that when I die, that's not the end. And I know that that resurrection is also not reconstruction. One of the things I often get asked is like, well, you know, I, I'm thinking about when I die, do I want to be cremated? And I'll usually get asked something like, well, you know, what happens if I get cremated? How will God resurrect my body? Look, if God made Adam's body out of the dust of the earth. I'm pretty sure he can reconstruct whatever he needs to reconstruct if he's going to reconstruct it. Or more importantly, if he's going to simply give you a new body suited for for his new heaven and his new earth, that's not a problem for God at all. But what we do know from scripture is that you're going to be known as you were known here. People are going to be able to see you, know you. When, When they look at you, and the apostle Paul writes to this end in 1 Corinthians 15, which we covered not too long ago, Verse 35, it says, it's almost the same. How are the dead raised up? With what body do they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow what body that shall be, but mere grain. In other words, when you put a seed in the ground, it looks nothing like the plant. Perhaps weed or some other grain. But God gives a body as he pleases to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men and another of animals and a burden of fish. In other words, God's given very specific characteristics and DNA to human beings, and he's given other DNA, specific flesh to other animals, birds, fish, and the like. And there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial one and the glory of the terrestrial one is another. In other words, he's saying, look, there's a heavenly body and there's an earthly body. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for one star differs from another star in glory. And so also, so here comes the similitude. It is like the simile, if you will. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. Look, when you die... It's not pretty. doesn't matter how nicely you die. doesn't matter how comfortably you die. doesn't matter if you die in your sleep. I've seen an awful lot of people who have taken their last breath. I've been on car accidents where it's really, really, really horrible. I've, I've seen things that I wish I could erase from my memory banks. It's just so awful. But it doesn't matter how you die. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how perfect you are if you went home to be with the Lord in your sleep and you're just sitting there with your beautiful angelic face and your hands clasped in the normal mode of prayer. Or you got vaporized by a nuclear weapon. The Lord is more than capable of raising you up because he's the one that made you in the first place. 
He can handle it. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body sown in corruption is raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, those are planted in dishonor. There's nothing pretty about a corpse in a box. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness and raised in power. I happen to be one of those people, I'm fascinated with archaeology. I get multiple archaeology magazines. And I, I, I just tell you straight up, sometimes I, I look at mummies and stuff like that, and I go, that's really cool. But it has nothing to do with them looking great. It's like, how did anything survive for 4,000 years? How is it you can still see even a little bit of the fact that they may have had cheeks at some point in time? But that's not how you're going to look when you are resurrected. That's how you looked after somebody stuck you in a box and put natron salt on you and did all kinds of weird things to kind of preserve your skin for a little bit of time. And God is saying, look, here's the deal. That's all dishonor, but you're going to be raised in glory. As a believer, even though that dishonor happens to your body, even though the worms have corrupted everything that's in the ground, even though you were sown in a natural body, you're going to be raised in a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. And so as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a spirit, a life-giving spirit. You see, when a seed dies and is buried in the ground, out of that death comes life. And so it is for the body of Christ. And so it is for believers. So it will be one day for Israel. They're actually going to believe in Messiah. And to be absent from this body, to be planted in the ground, to, to go instantaneously to heaven as we would do today. See, to be absent, as Paul said there in 2 Corinthians 5, from this body is to be present with the Lord. One day? We're going to be resurrected. That's why Jesus comes and gets his church, and then he mentions there in 1 Thessalonians 4 those who sleep in Jesus. People that are ready to be finally resurrected. When he returns, there's going to be another resurrection. These two events coming together called the first resurrection. Then there's going to be another resurrection. At the great right throne judgment there in Revelation chapter 19, when Abraham's bosom is finally emptied out, that compartment that today holds the unrighteous dead. Here we get a picture of that for the children of Israel. It's like, you can imagine the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. Hearing the words of the prophet Isaiah going, well, that's this whole resurrection thing. They're going to die. They're going to be raised back up. You see, the remnant had been praying to God. The people that survived the Assyrians were, were praying. They're like, Lord, what's going to happen to us? And so one day, that, that veil of unbelief is going to be removed. You see, the children of Israel, God's going to wipe away their tears. He, he's going to deliver them. He, he's going to... Confirm that eternal purpose for salvation in them. That's going to take the removal of the veil that the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when the Holy Spirit finally is able to speak in mass to the Jewish people. All of a sudden, it's going to, it's going to click exactly what the prophet Zechariah mentions to us. He says, look, they're going to mourn the one whom they pierced. They're going to get it. They're going to finally see it. That veil's going to come off. All of a sudden, they're like, it was Jesus. And so in this passage, we find that Isaiah is speaking of that day and time when they're going to get it, that, man, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to have eternal life. Back in chapter 25, we were reminded that one day God was going to wipe away all the tears from their faces. That he's going to deal with that pain permanently. And so Isaiah, in that sense, in chapter 25, says, look, he's going to swallow up death once and for all. And that concept is, is paraphrased by the Apostle Paul 
in, in dealing with this whole subject, it's like the only way that happens is by being one of God's kids. Because just as the Apostle Paul said, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift is life eternal. The wages of sin is destruction. It's rot. It's, it's a corpse in the ground. It's corruption is what the Apostle Paul said. That's the wages of sin. That's what it does. But when you're God's kids, and Isaiah's getting a picture of this for the children of Israel, one day you're going to get a new body. I, I can't wait. I, I feel my knees, and it's like, man, that didn't used to feel like that when I was 25. For those of you that can identify with this, as you get older, there's a beautiful thing of going to sleep. It's the getting up in the morning that's horrible. It's awful. You wake up, and it's like, man, I don't know that I can actually move now. You kind of crawl out of bed, and 45 minutes later, you finally can stand up straight, and you're just like, oh, yeah, ouch. But God's going to fix that. That sting of death, which is also the decomposition of these mortal bodies. He says, I got that covered. What Adam messed up in the garden, God's going to fix up when he raises us up. Amen? All of a sudden you're going to go, yes, I got a new one. And it's not just going to be... Sometimes we kind of look at resurrection almost like a car restoration. It's like you, you got this old beater model and you just kind of put some new chrome on it and do it. Nah, that's not it. You get a complete new model. It's not like the one you're currently driving. It's going to be fit for heaven. When God deals with death and the cause of death, which is sin, when there finally is no more of that, for national Israel, verse 19 says, your dead will live, their corpses will rise, and those who lie in the, in the dust will awake and shout for joy. It's like, you're not going to shout for joy if you're like something out of a zombie movie. You know, a bunch of dead people, you know, it's kind of like, eh. That's not going to cause you to shout for joy. It's terrorize you and everybody around you. It's like, oh, man. No, you're going to have new life. And a new body in Israel is going to experience this. Which means they're going to miss what the grim reaper has in store. You see, what God is really saying is, look, I want to give you eternal life. I want to give you a new life in Christ Jesus. I want to give you that heavenly hope. You know, that's what I have. Somebody asked me today, I don't even remember what, it was like around right before lunchtime. I was in the hallway, and somebody's come through, and they were visiting, and we were wearing masks. You know, why are, why are you, everybody so happy here? Well, it's because we're going to heaven. We've got new life in Christ. Why would we not be excited? You know, Christians shouldn't be wandering around going, oh, man, we're going to die from coronavirus. Now, look, you might die from coronavirus. But if you're a believer in Christ, yet you shall live. This is going to be the end. And for the children of Israel, they had this fatalistic understanding. It's just like, wow, you know, we're going to die. And then, you know, who knows what happens after that? And when, when Jesus returns, he's going to abolish death. You aren't going to even fear it anymore. And a lot of people do. Man, I've talked to so many people who are just struggling right now. And it's like, man, I'm just afraid I'm going to get sick. And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to die. And Jesus pushes us on through that in John chapter 5, beginning in about verse 25, it, 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 it says this, Truly I say to you, the hour is coming. No, in fact, it is now that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. He was speaking to the Jewish people. He's saying, look, there's going to be a time 
a point in time when when the dead are going to hear the voice of the Son of God. Like, boom, we're back. Jesus would go on to say in verse 28 and 29, same chapter, John 5, no marvel at this. For the hour is coming when those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life, in other words, those who committed their life to Jesus and those who committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. In other words, there's coming a point in time when those who are believers receive their reward and those who didn't receive the Lord are going to be judged. You see, my understanding of the restoration affects how I believe about suffering in this life. My understanding of the restoration, the resurrection, uh, helps me understand the spiritual world. It, it helps me understand that I'm getting a new body. It helps me understand that I have victory. It helps me understand the faithfulness of Christ. It, it helps me understand the rewards of heaven and a whole bunch of other wondrous truths. But if you don't have the hope of heaven, then you're not going to jump for joy. You're, you're just not. There is so much to Israel's restoration. They're, they're going to have that beautiful picture applied to them. It's like they, they'll one day wake up and go, man, this isn't the end. My destiny is not some sepulcher. It's not some ossuary. It's not a bone box in a cave someplace in Jerusalem. It is heaven. And it gives us that peace. It's like, Lord, thank you. You see, to the Jewish people, they were looking at enemy after enemy after enemy after rough road after rough road after continuing rough road after thousands of years of rough roads that included being scattered to the four corners of the world persecuted to this day, mocked, scorned to this day. More than six million of them murdered in the Holocaust. But there's a day coming when all Israel is going to be saved, when that final beast is going to be conquered. And that's the picture in chapter 27, verse 1 there. In that day, again, that same phrase. In that day, the Lord, with a severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the beast, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent. He will slay the reptile that's in the sea, this final beast that's going to be conquered. Now, we have a real enemy. His name is Satan. Man, he's raging. He's having a field day in our world right now. Now, one day, King Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back with a severe sword, great and strong. And he's going to grab Satan by the neck and toss him into the pit. And while the Jewish people were actually quite aware of sea monsters or beasts or dinosaurs or whatever you want to call it, Job alludes to that throughout the book of Job, chapter 3, chapter 41. You see this picture of this beast. There was a greater beast to the Jewish people. And that beast was their enemy. And the greatest of all of our enemies is Satan himself. And today as we've believed in Christ, we've been set free from that bondage of this beast. We've been set free from the bondage of the false gods that cause other people to walk in a, in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord. We, we've received that victory. And so that beast is no longer something that we fear. I, I don't worry about Satan. I don't wake up every day. Oh man, I hope Satan doesn't find me. I don't even think things like that. It's like if the Lord has got me, then I am good. One day, there's going to be a final beast. His name is the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 19 pictures a time when he's going to actually be destroyed. 
I can't wait. I, to me, I look at the world that we're in right now. It's like, man, that's got to be right around the corner of our time. When the battle's over, the Lord's finally conquered all evil. When Israel finally enters into their glorious land, when they're really fulfilling that promise of Romans 11. You see, today, we who know the Lord are already free from the bondage of sin and death. We're already free from the beast. I'm no longer ruled by the enemy. I'm ruled by the spirit of the living God. I don't fear this world. I don't fear dying. That may seem weird to you. Maybe you're one of those people that you still have a a tough time. I don't fear dying. I don't have any fear whatsoever because I know in whom I have believed and he is able. Keep that which he's committed in the day of Christ Jesus. When I take my last breath, I'm going to see Jesus. If I die, whether I live or die, I agree with the Apostle Paul. Whether I'm awake or I'm asleep, whether I'm here or there, I'm Christ's. That's why I can be fruitful today. And that's what the remainder of chapter 27 is about. Verse 2, and in that day, again, same phrase, sing to her a vineyard of red wine grapes, and I, the Lord, keep it. And I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. And I keep it at night. You see, Israel is the vineyard. God is the vine dresser. He's the one that waters. He's the one that keeps it. He's the reason they still exist. There is no reason for Israel to still exist apart from God's hand on them. They've been near near extinction multiple times. By some accounts, as many as 26 times since they entered into the land with Abraham. Thus did he heard, I keep it day and night. Fury is not in me. Or who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? You see, one of the things that the ancient Israelites did and one of the things that their enemies did, it's kind of like the forerunner, if you will, of our modern-day concertina wire or barbed wire or razor ribbon. Instead of using barbed wire or razor ribbon in the battlefield, they would just simply grab briars and thistles and thorns and stack them up in rows. And, you know, the the enemy would come and go, we'll go around the other way. Mm, Not too many thistles going to deter God. Not too many thorns. He's going to look at, wow, thorns, I'm going the other way. No, when the Lord comes to deliver Israel finally, when he says, I'm going to battle for them against the nations of the earth. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. In other words, the Lord's saying, look, you pile up thorns and thistles and briars in front of me. I'm going to burn up the thorns, thistles, and briars and you. Or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me. Oh, and he shall make peace with me. Those who come shall cause to take root in Jacob, and Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. That was God's plan all along. He wanted Israel to be a fruitful vineyard. But they didn't want that. They didn't want what God wanted for them. And he has struck Israel as he who struck those who struck him. Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him in measure by sending it away? You contended with it, and he removes it through his rough wind. For in that day of the east wind, and therefore by this iniquity of Jacob, by this the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. For this is all the fruit of the taking away of sin. This is all the fruit of the taking. How is sin taken away? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It comes by being found in Christ Jesus. And so Isaiah is getting a picture not only of the resurrection, but of salvation by grace through faith. Because their sin was never taken away on the Day of Atonement. It was put away. It wasn't taken away. 
It wasn't actually dealt with. It was simply put away and atoned for. But it wasn't taken away. It was still remembered. And when he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that were beaten to dust, the wooden images and incense altars will not stand. In other words, everything you had hoped in before will be replaced by a genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus. And yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken, left like a wilderness. And there the calf will be fed. And there it will lie down and consume its branches. When the boughs are withered, they'll be broken off. And women will come set fire on them for the people of no understanding. Therefore, whom made them, he will not have mercy on them. For he who formed them will show them no favor. In other words, the Lord's saying, look, I'm going to take care of my children. My fruitful vineyard that I wanted to have fruitful that was kept from being fruitful by the world, God's going to deal with the world. You see, we kind of look sometimes at the children of Israel and we, we understand rightly that they have a place in God's kingdom, but it's like you look and it's like, man, I just don't see how they ever get there. Well, how they get there is the day of the Lord. How they get there is the rise of the Antichrist. How they get there is God will finally come and deliver them himself. He's going to send Jesus back. Sometimes people look at verse 9 and they go, well, it looks like personal suffering can atone for sin. No, only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ can atone for your sin. That's it. God uses suffering actually as discipline. He uses correction as discipline. It brings us into submission so that we'll submit to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords, and to his grace. And so for the Babylonian captivity, the Jewish people had an opportunity in that captivity. They were there for 70 years. They had an opportunity to do some talking to God, don't you think? You know what's really strange about the Babylonian captivity? Ezra comes back. Nehemiah comes back. They rebuild the city, walls of Jerusalem. They build kind of a makeshift temple. Everybody whines about the temple. Nehemiah leaves and goes back to Babylon. And the children of Israel go right back to their sin. You see, you would have thought the captivity would have cured the the Jewish people of idolatry once and for all, but it didn't. In in Isaiah's day, they're, they're producing wild grapes. God wanted them to produce kingdom fruit. He wanted them to blossom and and bud. He wanted them to fill the face of the earth, as it says there in verse 6, with with fruit. And that was exactly what the Abrahamic covenant said they should do. That through all of the nations of the earth, through Abraham, would be blessed. And so these vines that the Bible speaks of, The children of Israel are the main one. Of course, in John 15, it's Christ and the church in this one little window. And then finally, this godless society that's wiped out in Revelation chapter 14, God says, look, the vine is mine, the earth is mine, the field is mine, the fruit is mine, it's all mine. It's supposed to bring me glory. Right now, the vine of this world is poisoning this earth with sin. Gentile society is poisoning this earth. It's dealing death. It's, it's depraved. It's, it's debauched. One day that vine's going to be cut off. Make no mistake, no matter what happens in the election in November, no matter who's elected, that's not the solution to the problem this world faces. No matter who occupies the seats of Congress and the Senate, That's not going to answer the problems that we have in this country. The problems we have in this country are a direct result of sin. That's why we have problems. We have turned from the Lord. And unless we turn back to the Lord, there isn't any hope. That's not meant to be a doomsayer. That's just simply to say, don't go looking in the wrong place for the solution. The solution is Christ. 
The solution is not a Republican solution or a Democratic solution. The solution is a Jesus solution. People need Jesus. That's the only way to get to that final happy, holy feast that's going to be in the very last days. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river. And whenever you see the phrase, the river, it almost exclusively refers to the river Euphrates, which is near Babylon, to the brook of Egypt. In other words, the whole Middle East. And you will be gathered one by one, you, O children of Israel. And so it shall be in that day that the great trumpet will be blown. And they will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, who are the outcast in the land of Egypt, and they shall worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. What an incredible picture of the very last days when the king of kings is actually worshipped. You see on the Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, those major feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, They would sound the trumpet and people would come to Jerusalem and then they would leave. They'd be there for the length of the feast, usually eight days. And then they go. But this is picturing a different kind of trumpet to bring the children of Israel to Jerusalem. Because they're going to actually worship on the holy mountain of the Lord. They're going to worship Jesus. They're going to know the king. They're going to actually finally come to know Messiah. And of course, we as a church are awaiting a trumpet too, aren't we? I can't wait. That trumpet that's going to sound for the rapture, the harpazo. The church heads off to heaven to prepare for the marriage supper of the Lamb. But for the children of Israel, this was a picture of the very last days that may not be too terribly far on the horizon. And so I pray. I pray that you're prepared to meet the Lord. I prepare that you're looking forward to that glorious kingdom. I, I pray that as you think on your own life tonight, that you have righteousness and peace that are in your heart. I pray that your sins have been forgiven. I, I pray that you already know what one day the Jewish people will know, and that's King Jesus. Don't miss that opportunity. If you're online and you're watching, there's pastors available to pray with you and share the gospel with you. If you know the Lord, it's time to be busy about our Father's business. It's time for us to worship the King, glorify the Lord in all that we do. So I pray you're found in that place of peace, that your life is bounded by righteousness and that you have this song already in your heart that will one day be sung in the land of Judah, that God has appointed you salvation and because of it, you walk in truth. Amen. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of the Jewish people. We know that your heart is broken by the sin-filled world that we live in. And God, we simply ask that you'd use this time of difficulty, Lord, as the whole world is dealing with this virus. God, you are still able to save to the uttermost. You're still able to minister to those who will call upon you and those that do will be saved. And so we pray tonight, if there's anyone listening that has yet to confess their sin, admit that they're a sinner, Lord, invite you into their life. We pray that they would do that, that you would make us your church as a fruitful field, but also, Lord, that you would begin to remove that veil from the children of Israel, that there would be a a hunger and thirst for righteousness and peace. Father, we bless you for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you that you've not cast us out, that you haven't sent us away, Lord, that you've drawn us close even during this time when much of the world isn't concerned with you. We know you're concerned with us. 
And so, God, we invite you to speak to us again afresh and anew. We look forward to joining together for the first time in four months on Sunday uh, as a church. And even though it won't be quite what we want, Lord, make us grateful. Give us your joy and your peace to share with others around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.